Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for this evening that you've given us. We ask that you would bless this time that we spend together discussing your word. And we ask, God, that your spirit be upon us as we discern its meaning for our lives. We say all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so today um, we're going to go over the smaller set of papers first. The how to submit an overture or a concurrence. And then we're going to look at the bigger set of papers um, and we're actually going to look at that for two weeks in a row. So it's a bunch of paper that I printed. I understand that's a lot of paper. So if you can hold on to uh, the, the really big section, we can staple those after, after tonight too. So if you want to keep those together. <clears throat> but one of the things that I started thinking about uh, that's probably been somewhat confusing to you all is um, we've not really talked about how uh, the process of getting something like Israel as an apartheid state, how do we get that uh, as a statement? Okay, so <clears throat> that happened this summer. That's what's gotten me so fired up about all this is the General Assembly voted and said that yes, Israel was an apartheid state. <clears throat> uh, I naively just assumed that you all knew what overtures and things like that were, uh, but I don't think you do. So I decided today we'll start with what an overture is, how it's happened, and then we'll start looking at a, a historic look at what um, PCUSA has done between Christians and Jews over the last 30 years or so. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> so the very first thing for us to look at is how to submit an overture or a concurrence. <clears throat> so every other year, our uh, denomination meets in what's called General Assembly. So General Assembly is uh, made up of all the presbyteries um, in the United States. They send representatives based on their size. Um, so, <clears throat> so for the state of West Virginia, for the Presbytery of West Virginia, I think we had uh, probably two pastors and two elders that are called commissioners. So they go and they sit on a committee, they listen, uh, and their committee make recommendations to the larger body. And then that larger body, which we call General Assembly, votes. And then, does this need to up higher? Lower. The beard's hitting it. Okay. How's that? Is that better? You still hear me? Okay. So then the larger body that's gathered, which is really a representation of all the presbyteries in our nation, um, make a decision. And then uh, if, it, if it changes something in our book of order, then those things have to come back to presbyteries to be, uh, to be affirmed or denied. So <clears throat> taking you back to uh, probably a polity class, that you had maybe West Virginia studies. If you can remember back to your eighth grade year, Pennsylvania people don't, I don't know what year you get it, but uh, at some point in time, you learn a little bit about, <clears throat> excuse me, how governments work, right? So when we were fighting the Revolutionary War, what we call the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence, does anybody happen to know what the British were fighting? What they called this. It's okay if you don't. 
they called it or referred to it as the Presbyterian conflict. Because the form of government we decided that we would have as a representative democracy was based on the Presbyterian church. So we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, judicial branch as a country, we pretty much have that exact kind of setup as a denomination. Okay, many of the founding fathers were Presbyterian. Many of the, the, the Ulster Scots that came over fought in the independent, War of Independence. They were given land in places like North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, right? <clears throat> so they agreed to this form of government, which is a representative form of government. So we, uh, as, as First Presbyterian Church, are part of the Presbytery of West Virginia. Six times a year, the Presbytery meets. And each time there's a meeting, I am a member of the Presbytery, and we vote as a session to send one of our elders to Presbytery. And they get to vote on whatever is presented at the Presbytery level, okay? But every two years, Presbyteries can send orders of business to what we would call the General Assembly. So think about it going not just from the state level, but going the next level up to the federal level of our denomination. That's headquartered in Louisville uh, on Witherspoon Street. That's where our General Assembly offices are, the Office of the General Assembly. And so presbyteries have a great deal of power. They get to be um, the first step of creating new either theology or new uh, ways that we'll react to something that's going on in the world or how we change our missions or how we change our book of order, okay? <clears throat> so going back to probably, I'll say the 70s, it may have been the 80s, actually probably the, let me start with the 80s because that's when our denomination came back together. The Southern and Northern branches in 1983 joined together, United Presbyterian Church of the U.S. and the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. came together in 1983 and formed the Presbyterian Church in the United States, PCUSA. That's our denomination, okay? <clears throat> in 1987, uh, there was some question about what do we do with the Jews? What do we believe about the Jews? What do we believe about Israel? Yada, yada, yada. The big packet of paper that I gave you is a portion. It's not even the whole thing. It's a portion of a paper that was written by a General Assembly called A Theological Understanding of the Relationship Between Christians and Jews. So in 1987, then finally adopted in 88, this was something that started out as, a concur of, uh, as an overture. So some presbytery said, we need to think how we're going to react and act and do missions and ministry with Jewish people. Um, those of you that are old enough to remember Vatican II, which was, gosh, 65-ish maybe, the Catholic Church wrote a document called Nostra Tate, and in it, <clears throat> the Catholic Church finally agreed that the, the covenant with the Jews and God from the Bible is still a workable covenant. Now, what's strange about that is as 
late as the beginning of the 20th century, um, some of the popes, uh, when the Jews wanted to go back to Israel, the popes would actually say to Theodore Herschel, who was uh, one of the founding members of the Zionist movement, we will never defend you because your people denied Jesus. So we have popes in the 20th century that were on record saying that, okay? <clears throat> After the Holocaust, many Christian denominations said, maybe we've got something wrong about the Jews. So Nostra Aetate was the Catholic work that said, this is how we're going to be in covenant. That then birthed other conversations in other denominations. How many of you remember what you were doing in 1987? Right, I was 11. What day? Yeah. I became a Boy Scout that year. I went to scout camp for the first time. Um, I didn't know what a Presbyterian was, could certainly not have spelled a Presbyterian. I, could, I just, I didn't know, right? I was still a little Baptist boy back then. <clears throat> My guess is any of you that were Presbyterian probably didn't hear a whole lot about this. It's probably not something that's going to come back in your memory. But this was a big deal when PCUSA did this. <clears throat> it has framed everything that we have done as denomination since then with the state of Israel. So the people that loved this work like to cite it. The people that disagreed with this work hate it and wish it had never happened. Okay. Interestingly, <clears throat> when it, yes, go ahead. That's, that's maybe, maybe I should choose a different word. Maybe it's not hate. Maybe they are upset that it ever happened. Yes, yes. Okay. <clears throat> so, in, in, in order for us to kind of understand what this framework is, we have to know our polity. This didn't just happen overnight, okay? So, some very concerned citizens wrote what's called an overture, we're going to overture the General Assembly to study something with between Christians and Jews. Okay, so they went through this process, <clears throat> um, which is spelled out for us. This is what I printed right straight off of our PCUSA website. This tells you how to, how to write an overture and the process that goes into that. It used to be that if a church wanted to do something, they would overture the presbytery, and if the presbytery passed it, it went straight to General Assembly. Uh, things changed a while ago that you now have to have what's called a concurrence with an overture. So if the West Virginia Presbytery passes an overture that says, we are in favor of women's rights, <clears throat> that doesn't go straight to the General Assembly. Another Presbytery has to vote on that and say, Yes, we think this is something that the General Assembly should agree to, to, converse, to have a conversation about this at least. That's called a concurrence, okay? No, it doesn't matter. So if... <clears throat> they don't. You can, I mean, in theory, you can send it to, so like I have a really good relationship with a friend in Philadelphia Presbytery. So he and I have worked together in years past and say, okay, if your church can pass this and my church can pass this, we think we can get the Philadelphia Presbytery to agree with, at the time I was in the Beaver Butler Presbytery or vice versa. 
right? But <clears throat> for the most part, you find out what your overtures are. Somebody at the presbytery level looks at those and says, uh, we think we can agree with these six, so we'll send them to the presbytery for approval. Okay? Most of that work happens um, the spring before the General Assembly, maybe the fall before. So for us, next fall would be the time that we would ever want to do an overture. Okay? And we could, we could overture anything. We could say, <clears throat> we think that we should open up a mission field in Logan County, West Virginia, um, to help the people in the coal fields even. You know, we think that our denomination should send a missions worker to the coal field, whatever we wanted to come up with, right? We can write it, we can research it, we can put facts and figures in it, and then it has to go to the presbytery. So just because our church says we want to do this doesn't make it happen. It has to go to the presbytery. And at the presbytery level, <clears throat> it has to pass by a majority vote. So from, from our perspective, theologically speaking, when we vote, just, you may not believe this, but you're gonna, I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to believe as a Presbyterian. We believe that when the majority of people agree on something, that it's actually God leading us in that direction. Okay? Now, that's great when you're on the winning side of an argument, right? God is with us, right? We, God has moved. When you're not on the winning side of an argument, then you are supposed to think God is still leading and now we're supposed to follow. We may have been wrong about the way we voted. We may have lost, but now we think we, we should just agree going forward because this is a God thing, okay? <clears throat> I tell you all of that to say from 2010 until 2016, we were very pro-Israel at the General Assembly level. Like it passed overwhelmingly that we should be more involved in peacemaking efforts there. We shouldn't uh, boycott them. We should actually invest in Israel with people that are in missions that are helping both Palestinians and Israelis. So in theory, our denomination should have believed that God has spoken and this is our way forward. Is that what happened? No. In 2016, at the Detroit General Assembly, we voted to support boycott, divest, and sanction, <clears throat> which was the first movement to be anti-Israel. In 2018, we, uh, if you were here last week when I told you about the Hamas and the hummus, okay, that happened in 2018. Uh, we voted against Israel then in 2020, with it being a COVID year, a lot of things got pushed to 2022. This summer is the summer that we voted on all of the, the messy stuff, as, from my perspective at least. <clears throat> so I'm supposed to, in theory, now that General Assembly has voted and it's been in the, in the, the way that I didn't want it to happen, but I'm in theory supposed to say, well, the Lord has spoken through our vote and just be okay with it, as are you, right? That doesn't sit well with me because I'm, I've got just enough Scotch-Irish in me that I like to be a rebel rouser and would love to 
to keep fighting the good fight. Okay? Yes, ma'am. That got, that's a great question. So, <clears throat> sure, sure, sure. No, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes, ma'am. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And so kind of the way our denomination has, has morphed in the last 20 years or so, maybe longer than that, um, <clears throat> We are very much in favor of social justice issues. And so we look at, and when I say we, I mean the royal we of PCUSA. We look at the Palestinian movement as an oppressed group of people, and Israel is the oppressor. And so we have, that's how we've shifted, right? So we're trying to love our Palestinian neighbor by holding Israel, the colonizer, the, this evil entity, holding them accountable. That's, that's how they would probably answer that question. My perspective is, uh, I think both Palestinians and Jews have a right to both having a state. So I'm in, call, I'm in favor of what's called a two-state solution, figuring out somehow for the Palestinians to have their own state, but also letting Israel be a sovereign nation. I'm very much in favor of that. Our federal government has said that for at least the last eight presidents, I think, have been in favor of that kind of a movement. <clears throat> I would argue many Presbyterians who sit in pews probably are, are more in line with that. Okay, But, but the way that these overtures come, um, it, it, there's, there's a little bit to the system that can be manipulated so that just like my friend and I can have a conversation about what we're going to try to get through our presbyteries, people on the opposite side are having those conversations as well. Unfortunately, they have a lot of support in Louisville by people that we pay to be in those spots um, that are also following along in this anti-Israel move. So... From our perspective, we feel like the deck is kind of stacked against us, okay? Um, so I kind of wanted us to get this notion of <clears throat> how this happens, how an overture, you know, if the, you remember the Saturday morning cartoon, how does a bill become a law? Do you remember that? Like, okay, that's kind of what I want us to just go through pretty quickly um, uh, just, just that process just so that you can kind of understand that process. So it would start with a session, okay? So our session as, of, of elders would have to agree for something. We think, let's say we're going to overture PCUSA that green should be our denominational collar, okay? So we vote as a session. We put science behind it. We put our opinion, our passion. We write this document. We think green should be the official collar of PCUSA. We pass it it goes to the Presbytery of West Virginia. So they take that document that we write and they get to debate that, that topic. They can strike things out, they can write, write things in, and then they vote on it. It could become, I wrote one that was uh, anti, uh, it was against anti-Semitism and against uh, Islamophobia. 
when it got to the presbytery level at Beaver Butler Presbytery, they had taken out every word for anti-Semitism and it became an anti-Islamophobia bill overture and no mention of the Jews whatsoever. That's how it kind of happened at the presbytery level. Okay. It doesn't come back to them. It does not. Or vote it down entirely, right? So what they <clears throat> so what they did is they just changed it enough to take anti-Semitism, Israel, Jewish, all of that was struck. It's not right, but that's what that's that's what happened. Yes, ma'am. Just have, listen. That's what. It's very political. Very political. It is. It's the same kind of feel. It's the exact same kind of feel. And it is. And so uh, one of the one of the challenges as a Presbyterian, um, guess who, guess which Christian denomination in the United States has put more senators and congressmen in Washington, D.C. than any other? Hands down. Presbyterians. Like legitimately, if you go back and look. I mean, it's it's overwhelming how many Presbyterian senators, congressmen, presidents have been in in Washington, D.C. So as a denomination, we're pretty well connected, like with our politics. Like we I don't like to be political up here, but but we make political statements as a denomination all the time. And we have political opinions as a people. I mean, we can't escape that, really. Right. So the challenge is to use the Democrat Republican thing. The majority of both Democrats and Republicans support what's called APAC. Do you know what APAC is? American Israel Partnership, something I can't remember what the rest of it stands for. The majority of our elected officials in Washington, D.C., even politically would say we support Israel being a nation. Okay, it's a very minute few that are on the news a lot that just hate Israel. And so for them, oftentimes they line up religiously where we are in PCUSA. So we have a tendency to be representative of the left wing of the Democratic Party, the the far left. That's how a lot of our national leaders kind of line up politically. Okay. So let's say that that color green passes the West Virginia Presbytery. We think the color green is going to be uh, the, the color that represents our denomination. We now have to have another Presbytery vote on that. When it goes to them, they cannot change the document that the Presbytery of West Virginia passed. They can either concur with it or disagree or take no action. So you have, uh, I think, 30 days after it passes the presbytery to find a concurrence. If you find that concurrence, it automatically goes to General Assembly, okay? If, however, we wrote it at the synod level. Have you ever heard of the word synod? They're not important anymore. Let me just establish it that way. We pay them per capita. They should not exist. We've tried to get rid of them several times, but they still are here. They are a grouping of presbytery. So we belong to the Senate of the Trinity, which goes from pretty much the entire state of Pennsylvania, all of West Virginia, some of 
Maryland, some of Ohio, maybe a little bit of New Jersey and a little bit of New York splashed in, but we're the Senate of the Trinity. <clears throat> if somebody at the Senate level writes an overture and it passes, it goes directly to General Assembly. Doesn't have to have a concurrence. So what we've seen is we get kind of a radical pastor hired by a synod. They write an overture at the synod level. It passes because three people go to those meetings, right? That immediately goes to General Assembly. Kind of negates the purpose of this being born at the church level, if you ask me, right? So <clears throat> sometimes overtures come that way. Oftentimes they come that way. When it gets to the General Assembly level, you no longer have opinions about whether or not it should be there or shouldn't. You're assigned to a committee, and it's your job now to perfect all of those overtures. So fixing grammatical mistakes, putting more scripture, taking scripture out, rationalizing anything, adding uh, evidence or taking evidence away. At the committee level, once it passes the committee level, <clears throat> if it passes unanimously at the committee level, it goes on what's called the consent agenda at General Assembly, meaning the Collars Committee has overwhelmingly supported the collar green being the official collar of PCUSA, and it's in the consent agenda. So when you come to the meeting that morning, they say, okay, we're going to approve the consent agenda. Sounds like it's something fun to do. All in favor, signify by saying aye. Raise your hand, right? You don't have to read that collar overture. Now officially green is the collar of PCUSA. That's how some of these things can happen. Often, yes, Adam. So Yes. Then they'll then they'll come back into the yes. Now the yes, that can happen, and it has to happen legally. That's part of it. Anybody can say, "I want to take this off the consent agenda," and have a discussion. Now at the session level, I'd love for us to have a consent agenda, because what a consent agenda is typically scheduling issues. So the happenings committee wants to have breakfast on the fifth Sunday of the month. Okay, let's put that in the consent agenda. The committee has agreed to do the work. They're going to cook the food. We all like to eat. Put that in the consent agenda. The, co the committee has done that work. There's not really anything troubling about eating together, right? Consent agenda. The children's Christmas pageant is going to be on December 18th. Session doesn't need to debate that. That's a scheduling issue. We put it in the consent agenda. We can all vote for it, okay? If I wanted to be sneaky, I could say, let's give the, the staff a 50% raise this year and put it in the consent agenda, right? The staff would all get paid. That 
if we if we voted on it, right? Just like that. Okay, that's kind of how it feels when things at the general assembly level get put in the consent agenda. And in my estimation, if things are so important to happen at that level, we probably should be discussing them more, right? <clears throat> but I've also lost, uh, and so I'm I'm upset that some of the stuff that I didn't want to be in a consent agenda gets put there. And if I'm not a commissioner, I can't raise my hand. I can be as mad as fire, but I can't do, if I'm not an elected commissioner, I can't do that, okay? So, once it passes General Assembly, if it changes a law, let's say our law right now is red, and that's in our book of order, and now we've said, no, we think it should be green, but it has to come back to presbyteries, and then they can, by two-thirds vote, if the presbyteries agree to it, then it becomes the law of the land, okay? Clear as mud so far, right? I know this is hard stuff. And I promise we are going to look at the Bible. I said we are going to look at the Bible. I promise. You never heard this before, have you? And that's what I started thinking that. I was like, I bet I've not done a good enough job explaining how a vote like that happens. Okay. So just like I said, my buddy and I write these things. There are other people that write these things. They're called the IPMN, Israel-Palestine Ministry Network or Mission Network. Sounds like they would be in favor of both places because they're named Israel-Palestine. They're not. They're 100% Palestine. And they are very well connected at the General Assembly level. Um, <clears throat> there's also a committee called ACSWAP, which stands for, oh gosh, what does it stand for? Advisory Committee on Social Witness Protection. Social Witness. Yeah, I think that's right. They can write overtures, and they get to write opinions on overtures. So when an overture comes, an anti-Semitism overture, they can write whether or not they think this committee should pass it or not. And oftentimes, if it's in favor of Israel, they will write, we should not pass this because such and such and such and such. Okay? What I, when I write an overture... I always come back to this document, the theological understanding between Christians and Jews that our General Assembly passed in 1987. It became the official statement of PCUSA in 1988. Okay? So let's take a look at this. <clears throat> Christians and Jews live side by side in our pluralistic American society. We engage one another not only in personal and social ways, but also at deeper levels where ultimate values are expressed and where theological understanding of our relationship is required. The confessional documents of the Reformed tradition are largely silent on this matter. Hence, this paper has been prepared by the church as a pastoral and teaching document to provide a basis for continuing discussion within the Presbyterian community in the United States to offer guidance for the occasions in which Presbyterians and Jews converse, cooperate, and enter dialogue. What is the relationship which God intends between Christians and Jews, between Christianity and Judaism? A theological understanding of this relationship is the subject which this paper addresses. Okay, Pretty well 
set out as a statement of intent, how would you assume the rest of this paper unfolds? I would say, if you're guessing, wouldn't you guess favorable relationship between Christians and Jews based on this first paragraph? That that's the hope, right? And that's it. That's accurate. That's actually what this paper does. Um, If you go to, let's see, what page should we start on? Well, that's what we're going to look at, the affirmations, right? So if you look at page 7. All right. There are seven affirmations, things that we should uh, we should agree with this. Right. We affirm that the living God whom Christians worship is the same God who is worshipped and served by Jews. We bear witness that God revealed in Jesus, a Jew to be the triune Lord of all. Is the one same disclose? Sorry, is the same one disclosed in the life and worship of Israel? Okay, <clears throat> can we agree with that? I mean, we can read the rationale, but generally speaking, right? We probably, from the conversations we've had, I think we could probably say, yeah, yeah, we think that's the same God. Um, that's not always been the case. And I, I think it's really kind of a gift that we all can nod our head yes pretty quickly. 20, 30 years ago, not all denominations did that. In fact, the Southern Baptist Church, uh, their president came out about this same time and said, God no longer listens to the prayers of Jews. That's what the, the, the pastor of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 80s said, Okay how do we, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that statement? Okay, how can you be called a Christian? How do we know? How do we know what God does? Right? Aren't Christians supposed to love? Loving our neighbor, right? We go back to loving our neighbor. So when a Christian denomination says things like that, and then any of you that have friends that are in the Southern Baptist Church, they all typically, they're kind of like Catholicism. They, whoever their leader is, that's kind of the Baptist Pope, I guess. So you all kind of fall in line. I remember in the 80s and early 90s, the Southern Baptist Church boycotted Disney. Do you all remember when that happened? Disney was becoming too liberal. And it didn't espouse family values and all these things. So the Southern Baptist Church said, if you are a member of the Southern Baptist Church... You shouldn't let your kids watch Disney movies. We should be anti-Disney. Okay, Churches have a lot of power. Southern Baptist Church, I mean, I think they still went to Disney World. They just didn't tell their neighbors in church that that's where they were going, right? We're going to Florida. We're not going to see the mouse, I promise. But churches have that kind of authority. So when, when somebody says, <clears throat> God doesn't listen to the prayers of Jews, and you're the, you're the kind of the potentate of a denomination, everybody else kind of listens with you. Okay, so some of those things were still being said in the 80s. I mean, believe it or not, right, some people still don't think Jews are in God's favor. That's still part of their Christianity. They believe uh, in what's called, oh, I just lost the word, supersessionalism. We've talked about that. Does anybody remember what that word means? Supersessionism. It means that Christians 
have superseded the, the promise that God gave the Jews. Okay? And so it's been a pretty common thinking that because the Jews denied Jesus, God's done with them, and it's only us now. Only those of us that follow Jesus. Okay? I think I was probably taught that as a child. Not in a mean way that I'm supposed to hate Jews, but you got to make sure you know Jesus so that you can be with Jesus when you die. That's kind of, I'd say that they were trying to scare the hell into me, right? And instead of scaring the hell out of me, they're trying to, I mean, you need to be afraid of hell so you better love Jesus, right? <clears throat> Adam mentioned it. So let's jump down to the sixth affirmation, which is on page 12, maybe 14. What'd you say, Adam? 13, page 13. <clears throat> the very bottom of page 13. We affirm the continuity of God's promise of land along with the obligations of that promise to the people Israel. So in 1987, what did we say as a denomination? Jews have a right to the land that God gave them. In the, the Bible study portion of this, which I didn't print, one of the exercises is to go through this notion of how many times in the Bible God has promised to the Jews they would have a land. Going back to when they fought with Canaan. Okay? <clears throat> so in 1987-88, this was the dominant belief within our denomination. This vote won. Okay? So, by that rationale, what should all of us have been doing since 1988? Working and supporting this notion that God has blessed the Jews with the ability to have a land of their own, a country of their own, with a promise of their own, that it's the same God, we believe in the same God, just like we're taught in social studies class in high school, right? Monotheistic religions but that we also think the Jews have a right to a place to live. Well, what in the name of all things holy has changed in the last 25 years? Correct. Correct. Is not. Correct. And if you'll notice on page fourteen, <clears throat> one of the one of the things that gets put in here for us to study is from our sister church, the Church of Scotland. Okay, so the Church of Scotland is one of the only Protestant denominations that actually has a presence in the Holy Land. So the Church of Scotland has a church in Jerusalem. The Lutherans have one there as well. Um, when I, and by pro, I mean Protestants. There's all kinds of other Christian religions that are, uh, you know, located there. But Protestant religions, it's the Church of Scotland and the Lutherans. The Lutherans also have a church in Bethlehem 
called Church of the Nativity. <clears throat> so those, those denominations have been struggling with this real problem of Christians that live in Palestine that don't have the same rights as people that live in Israel. That's a real thing, okay? In the 80s, uh, if you remember last week, this is about the same time that the very first Antifada started. So the very first time that it was a political uprising from the citizens, you know, rock throwing, uh, Molotov cocktails, things like that. That was the first Antifada. So it was this group of, of people trying to, to speak out against Israel. Um, at the time, what our conversations were at the General Assembly level had a lot to do with our brothers and sisters, Christians, who lived there but didn't always have access to get into Israel. Okay, So that was the first way that we started being really concerned about Palestinians, the Palestinian Christians that were oppressed there. Guess how many Christians are still in Palestine now? I mean, very few. Very, very few. Most of the Christian Palestinians have moved. They've come here, or they've moved to another country, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, something like that, uh, Europe. Most of the Palestinians today are Muslim. Okay? <clears throat> so remember last week when I talked about the American University in Cairo, the American University in Lebanon, like we Presbyterians started those as outreaches to the Islamic community at the turn of the century, 20th century. So we have those relationships. So we still kind of stuck in there with our Muslim sisters and brothers over there. Even after the Christians had left, we still stuck with this notion that the Palestinians were being oppressed. Well, what's the definition of apartheid? When you think of it, what's, when, what comes to your mind when I say that word apartheid? Okay, in South Africa, very specifically, right, where the colonizers, the Dutch, had all the power, very few number, but ruled terribly against the African, uh, the native people there, right? In Israel, in the state of Israel, um, all citizens have equal rights. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Druze, they're all protected. Is there an imbalance? Is there maybe racism? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Do they still have equal rights? Yes. Even to the point that the Jews have something that the Christians and Muslims who are citizens of Israel, the Jews have to do something they don't have to do. What do all Jews who live in Israel have to do? They have to serve in the military for two years. If you are a Christian Israeli or a Muslim Israeli, you do not have to. If you are a Jewish Israeli, you must. You don't get out of it. It's not equal, right? <clears throat> are you allowed to serve in the military if you are a Christian or a Muslim? Yes, but you're not forced to, okay? The only ones that are forced to are the Jews. So you could argue... That's not equality, but you're kind of better off not being a Jew if you live in Israel because you don't have to go fight in the military, okay? There are elected officials who are Bedouin. Uh, there are elected officials who are Muslim, 
who are Christian. They're uh, the current ambassador to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a Christian uh, by the name of George Deke. He is a Christian Israeli who's from Nazareth, uh, and he is, you know, one of our leading uh, figures that we can point to and say, you can't have apartheid if the government elects a Christian Palestinian Israeli to be an ambassador to a foreign country. That's not apartheid. That never happened in South Africa. You never had Africans in any kind of leadership form. Nothing, right? They had no rights. So apartheid's not the, it's not the right word, but it fits that narrative because it's, it's a racial and religious-based demarcation between the two. The Palestinian people are a landless people. They don't have a state. They're stateless people, right? There is no official state called Palestine. They live in what's called a military occupation. So Israel won that war. They won all that land. They allow the Palestinians to live in the West Bank and Gaza, but because it's still technically... Uh, Israeli land, it's a military occupation. That's where it's really nasty to be a Palestinian. That's where you have to go wait in the very long lines at the checkpoints. You don't have access to come inside Israel all the time. They shut the borders down. But it's not, it's not, it still can't be defined as apartheid because it's a military occupied zone. Okay? Similar to what's happening in Ukraine right now. What Russia has done um, by taking over their land, right? We still call it Ukraine, but it's Russian-controlled Ukraine. So any of those Ukrainians that live there don't necessarily have Russian rights, do they? And they no longer have Ukrainian rights, so they're kind of a stateless people in a lot of ways too. Does that make sense, that correlation? Okay. We're gonna spend a great deal more time next week on this understanding. So I'd love for you to read through it and come up with questions about some of the statements that are in there. Yes, it's small print. I apologize, Regina. <laughs> we, can, we can all go buy cheaters together at Walgreens after this if we have to. But, but if you can spend some time this week looking through this, there are some great theological statements. There's also some, I, I think, uh, ways for us to, to kind of seek solutions moving forward if we just go back and do some of the things that we've said in this agreement, okay? So we're, we're coming close to the end. I want to give time for questions if I've gone too fast on a certain... So it, yeah, it's literally what it is. It's a statement on the... yeah. Oh, there's been all kinds of work that's been done. This is still an official document of Peace USA. Yes, it has not been replaced. We have made several other statements that I think very much disagree with this, but we've never replaced this. We've never done anything to say we want to remove this as a declaration that, that we've agreed to. How many times have you seen this? Tonight? Right? So we can pass anything we want 
as long as ignorance is bliss. We don't, if we don't know this exists, we can write something new. It could stand in, in direct disagreement with something we've already passed, and nobody, no, because that could be God leading you to want to do something different. You would think. You would hope. Nope. Reformed and always reforming. So we, we are never called to be a stagnant theological group. We're constantly supposed to be. And so God is always moving us. So. Sure. I agree. Completely agree. Doesn't happen. And my, my guess is the people with whom I disagree most frequently, one I, if I were them, my next move would be to get this wiped away. Have this. Absolutely, you can do that. We can say we, can say we want to, we no longer want to agree by the theological understanding of the relationship between Christians and Jews, and if enough people vote for that to happen, we can do it. We can absolutely do it. It absolutely could. Mm-hmm. And what, so one of the most recent things that's happened, I think this was, I really think it was 2016. It may have been, yeah, I think it was 2016. We adopted a new confession. That new confession was written uh, by the Dutch Reformed Church during apartheid in South Africa. We didn't pass it when Africa, when South Africa was under apartheid. We passed it in 2016 when we needed to use the word apartheid against Israel. And so one of the things that I, I spoke on the floor of my presbytery at the time, and I said, why didn't we pass this in the 80s? If this is such an important document, why have we waited 30 years to pass a document about something that no longer exists in South Africa? Nobody would come out. And, I mean, I knew what the answer was. The answer was we're going to use this theological document against Israel. But everybody was like, no, it's about affirming the rights of all people to da, 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 da. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to say yes to it. I just argued, well, when the church wrote this in the 80s, we probably should have helped then for all the poor Africans that were under living under apartheid. Why, why the hell did we ignore them then? Pardon my French. But why did we ignore them then? Right? 
it, to use it to use it moving forward is is the sad reality behind that. So, and I'll print that out for us to read that next week too. Other questions before we close. Well, so, yes. Can I answer that better next week? Because it's going to take 15 or 20 minutes to answer that question. That's actually already happened, which is why this stuff is getting passed now. So when the church, very briefly, when the church voted to ordain homosexuals, most of the conservatives left. They started their own denomination. That was the group of people that happened to also fight really hard for Israel. They're gone. So once they left, you now have carte blanche to do pretty much. I mean, you can say anything you want. Uh, he, very difficult. Amounts of congregations, congregants, people that were very, very um, privy to the system yep. that our church and our denomination used. They were informed. Um, you know, it was a very different system of becoming an elder within the church. Yes. And education system. You were. You, it was, it was a, an honor to serve on session at that point. And it was, it was just a very different time. The smaller our church gets, when things happen, folks go to ECO or they go to PCA or whatever, wherever they go, they split off. The smaller the denomination gets, the more concentrated on one side or the other it, it's, it becomes. And these things get easier and easier. Fewer people that are aware of what's going on. Exactly. And that's that's the nutshell version of why this stuff's getting passed. We can we can we can pretty much see that that happen. Can I close this in prayer? Can we can we all at least go to bed tonight believing that we believe that we love the same God that the Jews love? Can we at least can we agree on that tonight? Is that okay for us to agree on that? Okay. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you <clears throat> so much for the promise that you've given to each of us, the promises of forgiveness, of grace, the way that you love us and call us to love each other. Lord, we ask that you would burden our hearts to be advocates for peace, and, and, and Lord, that we would seek ways to please you. We do pray, Lord, for people who are living in, in hostility. We pray for the Palestinian people. We pray for the Israeli people who live in fear of, of being attacked, and the Palestinians who live in fear of retribution from Israel. And God, in the midst of all that, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see a way forward. We pray, God, also that you would use us here in St. Albans and our, our local ministries and missions that we have here. We also love our neighbors here. Give us a great night's rest, Lord, and bring us back together in your will. We say this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, folks.